This is SciComm, ECH, the Illustrated Podcast from the Ecology Evolution and Behavior Program at Michigan State, where we talk to EVE researchers about science and comics. We not only use words, but also art to understand the exciting research that is being developed at EVE. We will have great conversations about science, and Naily will help to explore the visual aspects of the work. And in each episode, we'll, she will collaborate with a sketch that you can look up on our website. I'm your co-host, Bruna. My other co-host is Ailey. Hi, Ailey. Always a pleasure, Bruna. <laughs> and together, we are going to explore how organisms are dealing with the rapid changes that we humans are causing to the planet in this crazy, amazing, and also destructive era that is the Anthropocene. According to the Wildlife Services, the economic loss of the U.S. to agriculture from bird populations is estimated to be a around uh, $100 million annually. This is a big problem. And today, Ailey and I have the pleasure to be discussing this topic with Dr. Olivia Smith. Welcome aboard, Olivia. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So Olivia did her undergrad degree in biology at the Siena Heights University, her master's degree in fisheries and wildlife at the Ohio State University, her PhD in biology at the Washington State University, and her postdoc at University of Georgia. Now she's the presidential postdoc at the EEB program, working with Dr. Katherine Lindell, Dr. Jen Owen, Shano Manning, and Rinash Money looking at pathogen spillover in agriculture ecosystems across a network of cherry farms. She's also a cat mom of an adorable indoor cat that sometimes say hi on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So I, I always forgot to ask, what is the name of your cat? Her name is Nora. Okay, Nora. Yeah, I wish Nora was here, but well. <laughs> yeah, I hope I get all your qualifications right. They're very impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So when you're walking in one of those cherry farms where you work and you run into a farmer, how do you explain the work that you do? Well, they've been working with MSU for about 10 years. They started working with Dr. Catherine Lindell and Megan Shave, uh, looking at, the, Megan and Catherine were looking at if having predatory falcons that are called American kestrels could reduce cherry damage from birds because the predatory falcons scare birds away. So they kind of already know about the general project. So then I just have to tell them I'm looking at food safety issues. So it's a pretty easy connection. And people have been more concerned about food safety recently following the Food Safety Modernization Act and other types of regulations. So I think that they're pretty interested in potential food safety issues to begin with. And they're really interested in the falcon research as well because falcons are pretty cool yeah <laughs> that's yeah that's really fair yeah and it's good that they are already like up to speed so you don't have to be explaining like i'm trying to see bird poop <laughs> in your crops <laughs> or i'm like just looking at the sky <laughs> so th that's nice <laughs> yeah so how like does one get like interested in working with this issues like for like does uh those who doesn't know olivia like she's a really good birder a passionate birder. She has this amazing bird sweater on that just brings joy. So yeah, how how one choose to focus in this site that like can sound a little bit more like negative, like that birds can cause problems to agriculture? 
Yeah, my segue into it was that I was really interested in conservation as an undergraduate. And then I did a master's at Ohio State where I was looking at managing threatened bird species in agricultural settings. And so that was kind of my segue into caring about birds in agriculture. So I was interested in trying to figure out in intensive corn soil landscapes, how we can preserve birds through incentive programs like the Conservation Reserve Program. And then my PhD project was looking at trade-offs between bird conservation services that birds provide, such as insect pest control and potential food safety issues on organic farms in Washington, Oregon, and California. So that was kind of my segue into the negative side of birds. Um, so I'm really interested in trying to figure out how we can balance amongst conservation and trying to figure out how we can have farmers get tangible benefits from birds while also minimizing externalities like crop damage and food safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess we are like familiar with some of like the benefits that like birds can provide, especially as like biologists and like bird lovers, like pollination or pest control. But like when can birds be like a problem? Like you mentioned that they can like introduce like pathogens and be related with uh, food safety issues. So are birds just like bringing disease in or can they actually just be like eating the crops? Yeah, it's so if there are birds, there's always some risk of consuming crops as well as bringing pathogens into the farms. But what I've seen across my research throughout my PhD and postdoc work, it seems that it's really context dependent. So a bird on a farm in the middle of a forest isn't going to be the same risk as a bird on a farm next to a feedlot. So typically in more anthropogenic settings, like if you're on a farm in the middle of a city or a farm next to a feedlot or a farm in the middle of other farms, that's when you get more issues from birds. And part of that is because the types of birds change. So you're more likely to get things like starlings that are bigger pests. Um, but also those birds can have higher exposure to pathogens. So they're picking it up from things like feedlots. But then on the other side, if you have a farm that's in a pretty natural area, the birds are pretty different. So you get things like warblers and flycatchers, and those birds are more likely to be insectivorous um, and less likely to be coming into contact with pathogens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the surrounding like habitat really influences. And that was something I was curious, like, do we just see like grassland birds going to these crops? Because uh, I think grassland birds are some of the birds that are, like, most threatened due to, like, habitat loss. So are just grassland birds going to the crops? Or if, like, a forest bird wants to eat some cherries, they're they're going <laughs> to go for it, too. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so there's definitely differences in the propensity to damage crops based on habitat association. So if you're a bird that is associated with grassland, you might be more likely to go into low-growing crops because that's what you forage on. Um, but if it's a tree fruit, you might be more likely to get birds from the forest or birds that are um, maybe more generalist. They don't really care as much about the habitat. But I think if you've got ripe fruit, most birds are going to go for it. Um <laughs> But the ones that are the biggest problems are the ones that are pretty omnivorous and pretty generalist in their habitat associations. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do Ailey, do you have like a little garden home and birds just like invading it <laughs> you eat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that that is definitely something that a lot of us can <laughs> relate to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not just the feeders that all oh, the birds attack, they go for anything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so are there, like, any species that are more, like, prone to it? Like, because when I think about that, I just imagine this, like, huge swarm of, like, starlings or, like, um, house sparrows uh, going to crops. Uh, so it's very, like, linked in my mind to this, like, invasive species. And I think I read somewhere that, like, house sparrows can carry, like, it was a crazy number, like, 24 or 29 different like diseases so is that more related to like invasive species or can the natives also cause some damage um we found that the invasive birds are worse than native on average but it depends on the native species traits so species that are native like brown-headed cowbirds or Grackles, those types of birds that have similar traits, like they're human-associated, they're pretty generalist in their diet, those types of native birds are also a risk. So it's depends a little bit on their traits and their human association and those types of things. Um, but on the whole, the invasive birds are worse than native birds okay. for yeah. pathogens and crop damage. Okay, yeah. It's... Profiling is bad. Like, <laughs> there's a profile of birds that <laughs> damage crops. So, yeah, let's keep the profiling for the birds <laughs> in the farms. Yeah. And what species you would say it's like the number, like, one enemy of, like, the farmers? If we could have, like, an intervention for a species, <laughs> like, who would you talk to? Uh, um, well, starlings are pretty disliked. We did a farmer survey during my PhD where we asked people what birds they thought were the worst and why, which ones they thought were the best and why. Mm -hmm. And relative to the numbers of birds on the farms, the ones that farmers like the least are corvids, actually. Oh. So even though starlings are pretty bad in a lot of ways, Relative to the rate that they occur on farms, corvids are actually the worst because they're really smart. And so they do things that are not yeah. great for farmers. Like they'll pull out starts, um, like they'll just kind of walk around and pull out plants. And they'll also peck holes in irrigation lines and stuff. So they're kind of a big problem. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> it's like they're organized to cause chaos. <laughs> yeah, there was a farmer we worked with in um, southwest Washington and they were kind of in the mountains, and they had a chicken flock outside, and sh the mom and the wife owner, she said that every day before, so they would open up the chicken coop, and then they would come back for the eggs, and the ravens knew to come between the time that they opened it and the time that they came uh. back, <laughs> so they just see ravens flying away with chicken eggs. <laughs> wow, wow. How, how, how do ravens carry and she can act. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I I hope you're illustrating that. Eh? I'm yes, curious I am. to see where you're putting the egg. <laughs> it's in the bag. Is it in the beak? Is it in the tail? I saw them carrying it away too. It was in their mouth. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, 
is the egg broken or still intact? It was still intact. They, I mean, ravens have pretty big beaks, so they just kind of picked it up and flew away with it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm always impressed with, like, how big they are. When I see, like, a like, huge blackbird in the wild, I'm like, <laughs> crow or raven? And if I'm like, if this looks like a bird on, like, steroids, I'm like, it's a raven. <laughs> They're huge. Yeah. Um, and are there, like, any crops that are, like, particularly more vulnerable? You mentioned something about, like, the grassland birds liking, like, the, um, the crops that are shorter. But is there one that is, like, really, can be really damaged? Yeah, the worst one for bird damage is fruit. Um, the fruit, if there's any damage, it's not really marketable. So they, any bird damage at all is bad, and everyone loves fruit, so when it's fruit are ripe, the birds are in there eating a ton of fruit. So fruit is definitely the most vulnerable to bird damage. Okay, yeah. And I I guess when we think about, like, damage, a lot, like, even though it's uh, food safety, a lot is financial damage to these farmers. Um, But do you actually get, like, people getting, like, infected? Or the financial side is the biggest concern? There... It's a little bit unclear how big of an issue birds are to food safety. So there is one known foodborne illness outbreak caused by birds, which was a bacteria called Campylobacter, which isn't as known to people as Salmonella and E. coli, but it's a pretty big issue with um, with eating poultry. So it's something that we don't know quite as much about generally, but it's human, or sorry, it's a commensal with birds so in other words it can kind of just coexist in them it's not causing them a problem so it Mm -hmm. exists at higher rates so there's only one foodborne illness outbreak that we know for sure that was caused by birds which is the campylobacter outbreak caused by sandhill cranes however there are likely a lot of smaller illnesses that so if you an outbreak is where you have more than one person getting sick but there's probably more incidents where people are just one person's getting sick and then it's hard to trace back to a source and a bird. Um, So it's a little bit unclear how big of an issue they are, but there's been a lot of pressure on farmers from their buyers to have safe produce because foodborne illnesses are rising from particularly in produce. Um, And so there's a lot of pressure, but it's kind of unclear how big of an issue birds are. Yeah. And Maybe that's a silly question, but do you think this was a big outbreak just because cranes are huge, <laughs> so they're pooping a lot? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent question that there's not very much research on. So you can kind of think about the process of birds causing foodborne illness as you need to have the birds there, the birds need to be pooping, they need to be pooping bacteria, the bacteria need to survive. Yeah. And it seems that the survival of the bacteria is going to be related to how big the poop is, mm-hmm. but there's really not much research on it. Um, I'm collaborating on a project now at UC Davis where they're putting E. coli in bird poop of different sizes from different species and looking at how long it survives. And it does seem to be related to the poop size. So they're looking at um, turkey poop <laughs> and um, the turkey poop size is a lot more conducive to bacterial survival. So 
to support the idea with the cranes, yeah, they've got <laughs> yeah <laughs> bigger samples they're leaving behind, and so the bacteria are probably more likely to survive. Wow, wow. Turkey poop is all suddenly <laughs> exciting. <laughs> cool. Turkey turd. <laughs> and um, if I get like a veggie then with like a lot of turkey poop in my house, <laughs> if I wash it, is it enough or not really? I would personally probably not eat it. Um, it depends on the crop most likely. So some crops can actually uptake the bacteria into the plant tissue. Oh, wow. So even once you wash off the poop, the bacteria can still be there. But I don't think there's not really research that connects across this whole process. So from the time that the bird poops to the time that people wash it and eat yeah. it, there's not research that's really connecting that. So mm -hmm. that's something that definitely... People should do in the future. However, I would say if there's bird poop, don't eat it. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, and do you like do researchers know what percentage of poop is generally infected, or it's or it varies a lot in like crop and species and region? Probably it varies a lot. There have been relatively few studies. We did a meta-analysis a few years back, so that's where you're looking at data across different studies to try to look at broader trends. And we saw that Campylobacter was in about 10% of the samples. Mm -hmm. um, but things like E. coli and Salmonella were in less than half a percent of samples. So E. coli and Salmonella seem to be pretty rare, but Campylobacter can be more common. But Again, it really depends on kind of the context of the farm. So if your farm's in a really natural area, you're less likely to have contaminated feces. If you're in kind of a cattle-heavy area, that's your worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of depends on where it's coming from. And also, up until my MSU project, all the work was done on the West Coast, which is certainly different habitat and different bird communities. So it's a little bit hard to kind of extrapolate across all farms and all risks and all contexts. Yeah, yeah. And switching gears a little bit, I think in the bright side, your research also shows that like birds in the field not necessarily mean trouble. They can also be like helpful, especially some species. So which benefits uh, birds can provide to crops? Yeah, I've thought a bit about pest control. So they can eat things like aphids and caterpillars that can cause crop damage. So we can also think about managing them to consume these pest insects, and that can reduce our reliance on pesticides. Tell me about the kestrels. <laughs> so, so that's another... Another good pest control benefit. Um, so kestrels are predatory falcons, and they're pretty easily attracted to farms where they occur using nest boxes that cost about $100, so it's pretty easy for farmers. And they both scare away birds just because they're very territorial, as well as sometimes actually consuming them, including birds like starlings. And they also consume things like rodents that are causing crop damage. So... They seem like a really good way that farmers can pretty cheaply and effectively attract birds that can help control other birds and rodents. And so that can result in decreased cherry damage, which can increase profits. And then the new thing that we were looking at is if 
having those kestrels on the farm can also improve food safety. So if you have fewer birds, you should have fewer poops, and fewer poops <laughs> means lowered food safety risks. And so we're wrapping up the project now, and it seems like kestrels can be an effective way to improve food safety as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of kestrels. They're <laughs> really cute. Yeah, so it's really nice to hear that they have all these benefits. Uh, but is there, like, something, like, particularly good about kestrels that they're, like, used as a species to control other bird species? Is it, like, good for Michigan or maybe in other areas, other species of bird will be better? Or, I guess, having a bird that nests on boxes is so convenient <laughs> to <laughs> attract them to their farm. Yeah, I think any bird that uses a nest box is typically going to be a really easy thing for farmers to try to attract. Um, so we talk, we've talk we been talking about kestrels that are predatory towards other birds and rodents, but people can also use nest boxes to attract things like bluebirds on their farms, and those bluebirds can help control arthropod pests, which arthropods actually are causing more financial damage than birds even. So that's another thing that is that we try to promote a lot is getting people to do songbird nest boxes. So the kestrels probably aren't going to be a universal tool across the U.S. because they, the thing that makes them really effective in northern Michigan is that they already occur there. Mm -hmm. And additionally, their nesting period coincides really nicely with the cherry production period. Nice. So it's kind of this really nice timing situation where they're very territorial while the fruit are developing. And so they're very effective, but they aren't necessarily going to be effective if the crop is not ripe at the time that they're nesting. So it's going to depend a lot what's going to be effective, what's in your area, as well as what you're growing. And there are people who have done studies on uh, barn owls in California in particular, where barn owls are another way that farmers can help control rodents, which are big pests in vineyards where they can chew the vines and whatnot. So mm. kind of what's going to be effective is going to depend a little bit on the crop type and what's in the area. Yeah, but wow, like kestrels <laughs> and <laughs> cherries just meant to be. <laughs> That's nice. Um, and um, a lot of these studies, we think about them in the smaller like scale. Like, do you think that this benefits could be scaled to, like, large agriculture? We all want to, like, support small growers, uh, but it's to be realistic. We need to think that a lot of uh, the agriculture happens in this large, massive production uh, scale. So could, could this benefit scale up to you? That is a really good question. A lot of the research has been done on small farms rather than large farms. There has been a bit of research on bird damage in larger farms. So, for example, blackbird damage in sunflower and corn is something that is more studied. But I think there needs to be more work still trying to extend from kind of the small farm model into the large farm model. And I think there probably need to be a lot more incentives to try to manage at a landscape scale. If you're trying to target the big farms, so trying to get more hedges on the landscape, more grassland on the landscape. So really trying to think of these kind of 
larger scale models rather than trying to get every large farm to add a nest box. Yeah, that makes sense. It requires this like big community effort. And a lot of those methods maybe can put some of the burden on the farmer to make the changes. Um, is there anything that the government could do for help or like as a consumer, is there anything that I can do? Because I, I always think about the bird-friendly coffee. We have <laughs> that in Latin America. Is is there anything similar here? I think bird-friendly coffee is probably the biggest program that is widely known. And it would be great if we had a program like that <laughs> for every crop. But, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just hasn't happened. Um, in terms of government incentives, there are some programs like the Conservation Reserve Program that is paying farmers to take land out of production and plant it into things like grasses. But those programs, there's a lot more money for people to take than is being taken. So they haven't necessarily been super effective. So there definitely need to be big changes. I'm not quite as familiar on the policy side, but basically things are not being uptaken at a higher rate. I guess personally, based on my research, purchasing from a little CSA that you go to and you see and you know their practices, like that's how you know that your produce is gonna be grown in a way that's biodiversity friendly. But, you know, most of the food being produced and bought <laughs> is industrial, industrially produced. And so there really needs to be more of a policy um, incentive framework. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have your uh, bird-friendly coffee this morning, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a tea drinker. I don't know if there's bird-friendly tea. <laughs> I think they were trying to start that at the Smithsonian, but I don't think it's taken off. Uh, yeah. Three tea drinkers. I don't think are like such a strong community as coffee drinkers, or at least not as much addicted to it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, what do you think are some strategies then that we and I think, yeah, by we I mean you <laughs> could have to make farmers more aware of these benefits. As you said, there's this like pot of money that maybe it's not being totally used. Uh, how do we connect farmers to these resources and make them more aware? Well, I guess in terms of my actions, I've worked a bit with organizations like Wild Farm Alliance that's in California, which they're a nonprofit that produces a lot of educational materials talking about the services that birds can provide. So kind of making people more familiar with the potential financial benefits and kind of, it's a little bit counterintuitive to try to attract birds to reduce damage, right? <laughs> so so yeah. trying to help people see how that could actually be beneficial in some cases. So more education through resources like Wild Farm Alliance, but I think that even so, there are very enterprising farmers who care a lot, um, but you're never going to reach everyone. And so, again, it needs to kind of come from this restructuring of policies and incentives for farmers across a broader scale. Yeah. And related to that, what do you think is more challenging to convince a farmer that is good to attract birds or to convince a biologist that it's good to be repelling birds? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Are I, you convinced, Haley, <laughs> as a biologist? <laughs> um, yeah, I think <laughs> probably both camps could be <laughs> perhaps a little bit hard to convince of either way. But I, I think to me, it's important to understand that birds have both pros and cons. So it really depends on the context and the farmers and the region and the values and the crops. And there's not really a universally, yeah, I think you should always have tons of birds on your farm because if you're next to a feedlot and you're growing something that's really vulnerable to birds, I would say definitely try to repel them as best you can. But if you're in other contexts, like you're growing something that could really benefit from insect pest control and you're next to a forest, I would say in that case, it's definitely better to try to use those services. But it does take a lot of knowledge for farmers to effectively farm utilizing biodiversity. So it really requires a restructuring of the way that we're farming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I see that birds have this like really key like role in sustainable agriculture. And what are, yeah, if you could list like you're meeting with a farmer and if you could list like all the benefits, like, oh, you're going to use less pesticides. Maybe you're going to uh, use less herbicides too. Like what are the like practical things that you would like list to them too? Yeah. Gain your customer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think probably, I mean, with the predatory birds, I think that's pretty easy sell because they're really not causing problems mm -hmm. so they're a case where they can pretty much deter the birds and the rodents other than potential additional feces on crops but it seems that overall they're reducing that so I think you know predatory birds <laughs> pretty easy sell also people really like them so yeah I think a lot about farmer values so trying not to push my agenda on them so trying to figure out what they value and what they want and trying to help them within that framework and so I think Predatory birds are something that they already want. And, well, I should caveat, livestock farmers don't necessarily like predatory <laughs> birds, but as far as produce goes. Um, and, yeah, otherwise, I think just kind of talking to them about the damage aspects, like you can reduce your insecticide risk. And when we think about herbicides and insecticides, there's also resistance issues. So you can't use pesticides and herbicides forever because things become resistance. And so it's thinking about kind of the long term rather than the short term. One of the organic farmers I worked with said something that I think about often where he said, you can win the battle, but you can't win the war. So you can, in other words, you can keep spraying the insects, but they're always going to come back. And so thinking about mm -hmm. how you can kind of reduce your battles. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. just kind of getting into an equilibrium where the pests are tolerable. And also when you shift into these more biodiversity-friendly frameworks, you can sell your crops for a higher price. Yeah. So people are willing to pay more for it. So it's kind of shifting over your model to be more biodiversity-friendly, and then you can make more money from it. That's good. That's that's encouraging. I feel like we don't, yeah, we don't generally have this biology conservation conversations <laughs> <laughs> and finish with a more encouraging tone. So that's really great. Um, so switching gears a lot now. <laughs> uh, you don't only study biodiversity in birds. Recently, you also have been looking at biodiversity about outers that have been publishing papers. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Um, the peer review project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, total, total 
throttle gear switch. Um, <laughs> so the project is looking at potential bias in peer review and how to mitigate bias. And so kind of backing up to the process, um, we're a group of graduate students and postdocs. And so the project is kind of dual training for scientists as well as producing science that I think <laughs> is something that um, is worthwhile to be doing and beneficial to the scientific community. It is. So, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, on the one side, um, it functions as a training group where we get together every week. We read and discuss papers. We delegate research tasks so people can train on things like collecting data from papers and analyzing data and creating figures and writing. And then through that process, we're working on a problem that is extremely pervasive, which is that people have large disparities in peer review, which peer review is important because other scientists are assessing your work and deciding if it can get published. And those publications are important for advancing science as well as individuals' careers. And so what we've seen is that there are very large disparities when you look across all the studies published to date, um, particularly based on author geography, where authors in Asia consistently had worse peer review outcomes. Authors in countries with lower human development indices consistently had worse outcomes. Authors in countries that had um, English as a non-primary language consistently had worse outcomes. And we also looked at things like the authors assumed gender and prestige of the institution. And those also matter. So authors that are assumed to be female based on their names have worse outcomes. Authors from institutions that are less prestigious have worse outcomes. And so that was kind of the first component of looking at these disparities. And then we were also interested in what journals could do about it. So we know there's disparities. Now what's going to be effective? And mm -hmm. so we searched across the literature for studies and we found very few studies, so that's not great. <laughs> um, the ones that we found were based on double-blind reviews, so that's where the author and the reviewer are anonymous to each other. So kind of the traditional model is that the reviewer knows the author, the author doesn't know the reviewer. And so most of what's been done, which was four studies, <laughs> so not many, um, was looking at if having double-blind review helped. And it seems that it can. So you see... Either for the um, authors assumed gender, it actually flipped the gap. So women perform better relative to men under double-blind review. And looking at geography, it really reduced those gaps. So when you're when authors are known to the reviewers, then you see a big increase with things like your country's primary language is English. Mm -hmm. But when you go under a double-blind review model, you don't get that steep increase. So it seems like that can be effective. The other thing that people have looked at is if having a reviewer editor that is the same demographic as you improves your outcomes. And that was a little bit variable. So mm -hmm. it was sometimes the case that it was helpful to have someone of your demographic and sometimes it didn't really matter. And then kind of the final component was looking across over 500 ecology and evolution journals and seeing what policies they have in place to try to prevent bias. And basically they're not doing very much. <laughs> I want to say shocking, but <laughs> I feel I shouldn't. <laughs> so I won't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I, I might be biased as like as a quantitative 
psychologist, but I think it's so important to like quantify these numbers. Uh, and this is just very clear evidence of all these inequalities that uh, exist in the peer review process. But I was curious to know when this working group chose this topic and started the review, were you folks expecting these results or not really? That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. So I went into it expecting differences. So kind of right before the group started, I had some experiences in peer review that made me think the system was deeply unfair. <laughs> so as a reviewer, where I was seeing what other people were submitting, I saw some things that were shocking to me at the time. Like I would have thought that journals would censor the types of things that people were saying. Mm -hmm. um, and then also as an author, it seemed like I was getting worse reviews, like longer reviews, more likely to get reject with invitation to resubmit as opposed to minor revision than my co-authors that had traditionally male names like Michael. Yeah. Um, and you know, I commented about it to my PhD advisor and he said, well, Olivia's name isn't helping you. And I thought, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of had that fuel <laughs> uh, going into it. And so yeah. I was really curious, you know, it seemed like based on my experience that there were big differences. And then also as a co-author, um, seeing kind of the same quality of paper going into peer review. And then if there was a name that wasn't something like Olivia Smith, it seemed a lot more likely that we would get a comment that the English was bad, mm -hmm. even though it was exactly the same as what was being submitted under kind of a typically English name. And so the, those experiences just um, as an early career person and, you know, just kind of emerging into the system, like it, it's just not okay, you know? And so... We started this group where it's across EAM, and so people have very different disciplines. So it was obvious that we needed to do something that affected everyone, and so it needed to be something DEI-focused. And so peer review is something that affects everyone. It's really crucial to everyone's career advancements, and so it seems like an obvious <laughs> place to start. Yeah, I like how you say it's obvious, but uh, I got really surprised with the <laughs> choice because like Eve has so many different lines of research, in, I feel like with like inequality, it's very easy to like quote cheat <laughs> and make <laughs> connections with everything because everything is connected. <laughs> but you, yeah, you folks decided to go in this step with like DEI, which is which is great. Yeah, as a like non-English uh, speaker person from like Latin America, I wasn't also shocked with any of the results. Uh, but it's so important to have good and clear evidence <laughs> about it. I can yell, the system in a, is unfair, and say, Smith, 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and as a little like a spoiler alert and it's interesting result. I know you are working in a second paper related to that. Uh, and, and something you've mentioned is that um, a lot of these studies are conducted by people from the like, developed north. And I was just wondering, where do you think the burden slash responsibility of dealing with these issues fall? Because at the same time that we want to empower people, 
we also don't want to give them the burden of solving this issue that is not their fault. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a complicated question. <laughs> yeah, it is a complicated question. So we've been we noticed when we were conducting the meta-analysis that the studies are largely done by people in the U.S. is kind of the biggest share of the studies, and also it's being done by typically male authors, and so it's not the most diverse group of people, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are actually being done by the journals or the publishers, which makes sense because they own the data, right? So these are data that have privacy considerations, and so the journal owns them, and maybe the journal doesn't want to share it with other people, mm -hmm. you know, because it's not in their best interest. And so kind of what that creates is the system where a lot of the editorial pieces, opinion pieces that are saying there's a problem is done by authors, not from these highly developed regions, and then mm -hmm. the actual data is coming from people that are um, from the U.S. and the U.K. And so we're working on a piece trying to kind of summarize that and make suggestions. And what we're working on developing argument around is that the data should be available if people want it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people like us, like we're all authors at MSU, right? So we fall into this category of people in the U.S., in an <laughs> English-speaking country conducting this research. And we were able to get the data because we meta-analyzed it. So we weren't given access to data. We got data that were already available. And so oh. we're interested in trying to basically make it um, easier <laughs> for people to get data mm -hmm. if they want it. And hopefully our research will also spur journals to do more studies we already had three citations. <laughs> this work just wow. came out. So um, one of them was by a journal that actually published review outcome data in it. And so that's the type of thing that we're also hoping to spur is people really making this data more available and encouraging journals to do more of this research. Yeah, it's wow. It's yeah, so exciting already <laughs> have citations. And I think it's it's very slow, but um, hopefully we are also moving in the right direction. And I think this these questions are in this topic is being discussed way more than it has been before. Um, but it's also refreshing to hear that you are coming up with suggestions. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> we discuss and we discuss and we discuss. So having some like guidelines of some practices that can help is, yeah, super useful. Yeah, and we hope we kind of laid out in the paper some things journals could do, like implement double bond review, implement triple bind review. And my hope is that people will try different things and then we can get more data to figure out what's more effective. So double bind review seems like it's probably gonna be a good move, but what about triple blind? <laughs> and also um, journals can publish reviews. And so they can actually publish their reviews even under a double or triple blind model because they don't Ooh. need to be names on it. Or you could even have double and triple blind during review and then publish names after. So I think there are a lot of ways that journals can kind of mix and match these practices and try to figure out what's most effective. Yeah, and holding people accountable, I'm sure, <laughs> will be <laughs> really helpful. Yeah, nice. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today, Olivia. This was such a fun talk. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, any final questions, Ailey? Or can we peek at your drawing? <laughs> so that's the worst thing to ask an artist. Can I see the art that is not finished? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just so, so impressed and, and glad that you joined us, Olivia, <laughs> and um, for this really thought-provoking conversation. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel every question that I asked, 
you were like, oh, so I was doing this study. <laughs> Sorry, you're covering like all the parts. It's really amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much again for being here with us uh, today, Olivia. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> you can find out more about Olivia's research on Twitter at SmithOliviaM. Thank you for listening to Eb Sci Comic, an illustrated podcast created by and for the ecology, evolution, and behavior community. We are Ailey and Bruna, Eb Digital Fellows. We invite you to check out our accompanying comic at eeb.msu.edu. The opinions shared on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the EB program. You can learn more by visiting our website, eb.msu.edu, or follow us on Twitter at eeb underscore msu.